Warning. This issue of Nilda Sperandum is rated R for strong language and drug references. Listener discretion is advised. Nil Desperandum 31, The Drug Study, by James Austin Farrell. This is part two in the conclusion of The Drug Study, by James Austin Farrell. In part one, our narrator, a drug user, an Englishman, had come to Canada to try to find a new life for himself with a job as a busboy in an Irish pub, and a new girlfriend. He was trying to get by. Until an old friend of his passed away, and he returned to England for the funeral. Coming back to Canada, he found that his questionable job at the Irish pub had been given to someone else. Left destitute, trying to find a way to earn some money, he enters a drug study. And this is where we pick up, as the drug study continues. Special thanks once again to Mr. Ed Smithson for his wonderful narration. Not long before my arrival in Canada, there had been a referendum on whether Quebec should become an independent state. The vote went 51% to 49% in favour of staying with Canada. This was just a short time before I sat in the drug study waiting room, with who I would later discover were the partisan French Canadians. I could understand, when looking around me, why 49% of French Canadians might want to debracket themselves from the rest of the country. They simply didn't look like the rest of Canada. There were nurses that spoke in English for the few English-speaking participants, and it was when we were separated that I noticed gladness on the expressions of the French side once we were removed from the hall. If there was any resentment against English-speaking Quebec then, it was alien to me. I knew very little about the politics, the culture of Quebec, I felt like a non-player in the charade of ostracizing that I found to be nascent within this group of men. Once the French-Canadians were together, they became animated and loud, almost exaggerating their camaraderie, which made us that were not part of their group look like a sorry lot. They took blood and urine samples, weighed us, probed us about our health, which I thought farcical, and then they finally got around to telling us how we were going to make our money. The study tested the drugs for their bioavailability, a term at the time I was not aware of, which means examining how a drug, after being taken intravenously, circulates through the subject's body. The drug, we were told, was already on the market. We would be testing a medication prescribed for anxiety disorder. I was glad of that. The trial would last five days, and we would only be taking one pill. Some of us would be taking a placebo. After the initial dose, we would have to have blood draws at various parts of the day. It was said that the blood draws could be a little uncomfortable, and those with a fear of needles should state now rather than later. If any of us pulled out of the trial, we would receive no payment whatsoever. If we were asked to leave the trial, we would receive no payment whatsoever. I had, in the past, accustomed myself to needles. The plunge didn't bother me. In fact, I quite liked it. As a kid... I had always used to enjoy watching the nurse giving me my tetanus jab, or some such immunization. 
The reason I had not become fully involved with whacking heroin in England was not because of the unpleasantness of the process. Far from it. It was all about decline. I was actually looking forward to the study, to seeing how I might handle living with the men, some of whom it was obvious had done this many times before. I had to stop grieving. I needed to care again. And I thought the study might help upset the grim monotony of thinking about my dead friend. I wanted to be with my girlfriend, whose affection and loyalty I appraised by the minute. But even with her succouring to my pity, I felt unfixable while I was with her. I had no doubts about taking part in the trial. I hoped it would be awful in a way. I wanted to be shocked, and by being shocked, be rescued from my thoughts. Don't drink alcohol or grapefruit juice twenty-four hours prior to entering the study. No food is allowed to be brought in from outside. No visitors are allowed, and you must conform to Phoenix rules and policy. Any acts of criminality will be dealt with accordingly by the police. Remuneration would be $3,500 for the five days. My girlfriend was pleased. We had been doubting the sustainability of my stay in Canada. 3500 bucks would be enough to see me through a couple of months living frugally. I had wanted to repay her some of the money she gave me for my return to England, and I planned on giving her some of the study money, but she insisted I didn't have to pay her anything. You could, for health reasons, only take part in two studies every six months due to the amount of blood they took. Although, after my Phoenix interview, I found out there were more trials in Montreal, with other medical trial companies. I figured if I took part in other trials, you might call it moonlighting, I might not have to suffer the ignominy of begging to pubs for cleaning work. As for my diminished blood supply, well, it was something I tried not to think about. The evening before I left for the study, my girlfriend took me out for Thai food. I transgressed with red wine, hoping it wouldn't show up in my urine test the next day, and we returned home to fuck. It felt like I was going to jail. The study centre was miles out of town, and I had no idea where I was to get off. There was no one on the bus whom I recognised from the check-up and briefing. In all, there were to be about fifty participants on the trial, and I had met only about half of them. There were a few on the bus who looked like drug addicts, so when they stood up I followed them, and they took me to the door of the clinic. I was seventeenth to enter the place, which meant that from then on I was number seventeen, or deset, as they preferred to call me. I entered a large room with a TV playing at the foot of the room next to a window that was blocked out by blinds. There was a pool table at the rear end, and on the left side there were smaller rooms where I could see bunk beds. On the right side was the lab, the place where we would be called to occasionally for our blood draws. Number 18 stood behind me. Number 16 was already watching TV. As we were given our meals in order of our numbers, and as we had the blood draws in this same order, I spent a lot of time in the company of sixteen and eighteen. We were forever bumping into each other in the lab, mopping up our sores in unison, sat with each other in adjacent cubicles in the toilets trying to quietly defecate. For maybe the first time in my life, I resented the determinism of my internal machine. Being as regular as clockwork, with two other men as witnesses, felt like an impingement on my freedom. The trial was serious about us eating all the food, we got up together, were sent to bed at the same time, and there was to be no sleeping in the daytime, and no strenuous exercise such as sit-ups or push-ups. I was quite fond of eighteen, a Puerto Rican immigrant who had lost his job, the embarrassed sort of drug study participant. He found it amusing that I had come to Canada, and ended up in a trial so quickly. 
He told me he wouldn't be doing it again, that he had work coming in. Number 16 didn't speak to me. He was part of a clan of men that watched ultimate fighting all day long. I had never seen ultimate fighting before the study, but as the smoking room played it on the VCR all day, I watched quite a lot of UFC. I never understood why bars in Spain or Greece would play videos of men fighting while dissonant groups of tourists drank themselves into a nationalistic fervour, and it seemed risque to me that the drug study, knowing the volatility of locking men in a room for almost a week while clumsily taking their blood, would afford the men the luxury of watching fighters kick the shit out of each other. Number 16 followed a bigger man around, a man who was undoubtedly the alpha male of their pack. And in a primitive place like the drug study, the primal necessity for an alpha male would become very apparent. The large man, I never knew his number, made the others laugh. He chose the videos, or at least which UFC videos would be watched. He kept the smaller man in line with the nuances of his high-definition smile. Although he ignored me, the only English-speaking man who sat with them in the smoking room. Whenever I walked into that room, there was a short silence. The alpha male would glance at me casually, and the room would become lively again. There were a couple of older men, more bedraggled men, who coughed a lot in the corner of the room, and who had the sour and indifferent look of men who wanted to die. I liked to imagine they were the wise men, but that was a stretch of the imagination. I didn't fear any of the men in that smoking room. I knew they couldn't afford my fear. Any kind of altercation, and we'd be thrown out of the study. I didn't really dislike them that much for all their aggressive buffoonery. They provided me with enough creative interest that made the time elapse much faster than watching TV at the front of the lab, with the participants that neither smoked or talked to anyone. I hardly slept a wink the first night, struggling to relax in a room full of strangers. I've always detested snoring. It seems like such a cry for attention. Earplugs were supplied, but I had not taken any, funded by an optimism I would later regret. About seven o'clock the next morning, we were told to get out of bed. One of the student doctors came round and shook my leg, telling me in a formal manner that I must comply to Phoenix policy, and that meant getting out of bed at the right time. Not only had I been turned into a mere number, but I had also been relegated to a child. I guessed at that moment that my creative interest would not flourish as much that day. I plodded around the main room, bored and tired. Number 16 had slept well. I could account for that. He had a habit of looking at me suspiciously, making meaningful eye contact, and I didn't understand why. He looked nervous, fretful, mischievous, and I wondered if I hadn't stolen something from him by accident. Or perhaps he had stolen something from me on purpose. There was only one blood drawer on the second day, which came shortly after we had breakfast. We were always impetuously hungry before we ate, but could hardly eat a whole meal when it arrived, which then made us feel sick. Each time I think we all regretted our impatience. I had seen a man the night before, and heard him on the telephone speaking in English. This conspiratorial tone had made me think he might be a drug dealer. In those days I thought everyone who whispered was whispering about drugs. I dreamt about drugs, and I thought about drugs continually. So maybe it was necessary, for the good of my mental health, that I would project my fetish onto others. Sitting down next to him, I decided to make conversation for the first time while entering the study. He was not reluctant to talk. His name was Simon. 
He was a broke musician from Toronto who had come to Montreal to play in a band, though his band was far from earning the money commensurate to being in a band, the artist's Catch-22. This was not his first study. He had taken part in many. I was gladly endeared to his studied insouciance, his devil-may-care attitude when using the phone for longer than the ten minutes we were allocated. He knew what he could get away with. He also knew to stay away from the smoking room. Fucking idiots, he said of the men I had spent the first night with watching UFC. I've seen a few of them on other trials. I doubt Simon would have approached me the whole week, though once I had talked to him for a while, we had plenty to say to each other. We were of similar ages, like the same bands, and he seemed to think that a Yorkshire accent was amusing. Dude, he said, have you met that guy over there with the balls? I looked over to the other side of the room to see a very thin, bald, middle-aged man who sat with an exaggerated straightness, with both his hands held out in front of him, as Jesus did when his disciples prostrated in front of him. In each hand he held two Chinese Baoding balls, the ones that have the chimes in them used for meditation, though in the UK they are more often than not made redundant until families perish lost in the junk drawers that every house seems to have. I had never known what they were used for before I met number 35. 35 was adroitly rotating two balls around in one palm. It was impressive. It was effective. And to his noticeable delight, a crowd of study minnows had collected around him. 35 had a disturbing appearance. He looked mentally unsound. He moved the balls in his hand, exerting a look of meditation a solicitous look that begged for his audience. The study didn't seem like the kind of place you'd meditate in. It seemed much more like the kind of place you'd meditate after. I knew from the moment I saw him, as did Simon, that he was deranged. It was a form of self-harm, drawing the crowd to him, because people made him nervous. People were a problem for him. No, I haven't talked to anyone yet beside you. Why? You've got to speak to him. I've never heard so much shit in my whole life. In what way? Just go and speak to him. I decided I would. I wanted to impress my new study buddy. I had my tribe now, my clique. It was small, but I trusted it. I thought about telling him why I was on the study. I wanted to tell him I had been a drug addict. I wanted to tell him my friend had just died, that I hated my mother, and now that she had died I felt weak and needy. I wanted to talk to a stranger and explain how life was unfair. Though, of course, I did none of that. First I finished my breakfast, and then smoked a lot of cigarettes. I played a game of pool, which I wish I had never started, because an irksome character I should have stayed well away from wanted to make friends with me. After losing his friendship, I played a game of baseball on the Nintendo, and again halfway through I realised I should have kept my distance. The participants, not tethered to a group, were a clingy lot, desperate on this second day to get hooked up with a tribe, though, like all desperate people, they repelled me. The man who'd invited me to play pool, a man of munchkin build and voice, was following me. I felt guilty moving from whichever spot he followed me to. Should I not have had pity for the meek? But three was unreachable. He was out of my range of pity. Still, I decried my selfishness my narrow-mindedness, seeing as that it was his PVC jacket with bright tiger-head decoration on the back that rallied my distaste the most. 
that and the fact he kept a stubbed smoke behind his ear. He looked like a thirty-year-old trapped in a kid's body. He waffled on about hockey, babes, beer, as if trying to convince me he had grown up. I did everything I could not to look conspicuous when I dodged his wanton stare and rushed to opposite sides of the room pretending to take interest in door hinges and carpet composition. Simon was on the phone a lot, further establishing my assumption that he was heavily into drugs, possibly even a trafficker, given the amount of whispering he did. I had nowhere to retreat to. The pool table and Nintendo were almost always being used by younger French Canadians. Guys in the study not there for rent or food, but for clothes and booze. Guys who didn't bother casting a vote in the referendum. Lying down on the bed was verboten, and I didn't feel like I had it in me to sit around thirty-five whilst he meditated, and anyway, three was there most of the time, his caterpillar eyes following the balls around with an exaggerated infantile incredulity. Occasionally, one of the goons in the smoking room would come out and use the phone, which often elicited a kind of non-violent standoff that would never properly be resolved. Everyone knew, though hardly wanted to put up with the fact, that no one adhered to the ten-minutes-only rule. There were few English speakers in the study, but if it were an English speaker on the telephone when one of the smoking-room cliques wanted to use it, the room enlivened, it listened. There were two telephones, but with so many men on the study, they were almost never free. Usually, the man on the phone would realise he should hang up. We all wanted to be paid. It seemed inevitable that the smallest infraction against any group would result in many peoples embattled and tightly wound restraint coming unfastened. I had not even used the phone yet, and it seemed unlikely that I would. I wanted no distractions while I was in there. I had nothing really to tell Holly, anyway, and she was the only person I could conceivably call. During the second day, an intrepid medical student selected a video that was not only in English, but was incontrovertibly not UFC. I was smoking at the time, when, after UFC had finished, an American blockbuster brazenly filled the TV screen. It was the kind of insane, unprovoked attack no one had expected, and so left the goons in a state of shock and bemusement. Moments later, the well-dressed, obviously well-to-do med student, took a seat without so much as looking around him to see which direction the knife would be entering his neck. I could only guess, as I had seen this kind of middle-class bravery before, that the student lived in a world where men didn't get their noses broken for the most timid of transgressions. From this moment on, other English speakers, including me, would ask for English-language films to be played in the smoking room. The goons weren't the same. They were crestfallen, hardly animated, hardly as happy as they had seemed. They had experienced a fall. Their freedom had been denuded, and they were powerless to fight back. Though later that night, they figured out a way to attack without causing injury. During the films on TV that were English-language, they chattered loudly, guffawed at the most insignificant jokes. This I knew without understanding the content of what they said, and generally ruined any chance of listening to a film. It's always like that, Simon told me. I just don't bother trying to watch movies. I wanted to ask him about drug dealing, but thought I needed more realistic evidence, something more solid than my imagination. I attempted to talk about ecstasy and the great rave movement of the early 90s, but he didn't seem interested in talking about that. This only made me more suspicious of him. I tell you, man, stay away from that room, he told me, then walked away.
I couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate. The study made me restless, out of sorts, unable to sit, not comfortable standing. I decided it was time to speak to thirty-five. His balls were back in their velvet-lined box, though the lid he left open. I attempted to look disinterested when I sat down near to him, though I think he was ready for me. He knew I would arrive sooner or later. Can I see them? He pushed the box over the table towards me, but said nothing. I've seen some of these before, but I never knew what they were used for. My accent seemed to pique his interest. The balls represent the yin and yang, the two opposing aspects of the universe in Chinese philosophy. By turning the balls in my palms, I am creating an equilibrium of the positive and negative forces. How do you know which one is yin and which one is yang? Quite seriously, he said. It doesn't matter which one is yin and yang. They just represent opposing forces. He told me that he was a martial arts expert. Unsolicited, he also told me he had the ability to kill a man with one strike. Told him I was from England, whereby he showed me his Swiss army watch, which he said he had bought while in Switzerland. He was a successful software designer. Had never been to England, but regretfully told me how he had taught an Englishman the art of combat once before, which ended disastrously though he was not at liberty to tell me how. Even if he was the maddest man in the room, he was the most interesting. I felt like I had untapped a spring. He was a good liar in that he believed his own lies, and a bad liar in that his lies were preposterous. But I had to give him credit for his vim. He was even known by the CIA. I felt fairly comfortable sitting with him until he told me that he was rich. Only then did I feel like laughing. God knows how he would have responded. My first thought was he would have imploded, self-destructed as artificial intelligence does in the movies when its disguise is compromised. I met my first compulsive liar when I was about thirteen years old. A kid that lived in a run-down semi-detached council house had also once told me he could kill a man with one blow. Except this kid, Rory Cawthrop, had a certificate that said so. We often used to shout over the street when he was playing in his garden trying to elicit a chase. Rory, Rory, tell us a story. Rory told us that he had a fully equipped gymnasium in the upstairs of his council house. To be thirteen, and already blitzed by pathological self-delusion. I remember one of my friends contesting his claims, asking, What about the ear bone? How can you break that? It's flexible. I thought this cunning as a young lad, even though I had no idea if the ear actually had any bones in it. Rory said it was possible. He had the certificate. I realised during this assault on Rory's delusions that it was cruel to burst someone's bubble. It was brutal, in a way, worse than physical violence. I reckon somebody must have taken Rory to court in his later life. I heard that he joined the army on leaving school, but was soon out. Before we were twenty, Rory had jumped off the viaduct, an iconic suicide spot in my town. I wondered at the time, if he had not really believed that he could fly. But the truth is, I'm sure, he could no longer believe his own lies. It is easy to go insane, I think, but to stay insane is, unfortunately, very difficult. 35 was finished with his storytelling, which I assumed was as much for his benefit, a kind of revitalising of the narrative, as it was for mine. He sat there with the yin and yang rotating in his hands again, the poles of the universe in his fingertips, 
spinning in his untruthful clammy palms. I realized that he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. The universe itself is a lie as far as we understand it. What we know is gossip, make-believe, yet we live with so much bullish clarity and certainty. I was, in other ways, just as deluded as he was. I took the earplugs that night. They felt like cigarette filters in my ears. I tried to sleep, but the noise from within my skull was as loud as the snoring. Not from contemplation or illusion, but from white noise. At some point, I lost the plugs in the mangled bedsheet that wrapped around me as if it were possessed. I turned and kicked, and it tightened around me. The thought of another day without any sleep scared me. Then I heard a familiar noise in a lower bunk opposite my bed, and caught sight of Sixteen tossing off under his blanket. Impolitically, I leaned to the side to get a better look, just to be sure, and then I realised he was looking back at me. I thought about my friend leaving the bathroom for the last time, just before his dad kicked down the door. I thought about death a lot as I lay awake in that bed. Day three, the pill, and twenty blood draws. I must have only slept for an hour. As Sixteen got out of bed, I pretended to be asleep, but it was futile hiding from him. If only I'd have missed the bus, or even walked slowly towards the clinic, I could have been next to a number like twenty-two. He looked less prone to masturbation. Sixteen, me, and Eighteen were called into the lab for our first draw. Immediately it became apparent that my veins were not ideal for the job at hand. They were not charitable. I recalled the difficulty junkies would have finding a vein in my arm on the few drunken times I had said no to the foil and did it the man's way, as one of my mates had often said. My life as a junkie was mostly subterranean. I kept myself to myself, feeling one day, when I was ready, I would become a real person again. You lose yourself in the junk. Your personality deflates. And I actually became nostalgic for the man or boy I had once been. I missed laughter. I missed giving a shit about things. On few occasions when scoring, I would bump into another junkie who I had known in school. This always made me miserable. The appearance of a person from my pre-junk past would induce reflective mayhem. Looking in the mirror, I had myself to contend with, and that was easy, easy to ignore. But another person forced me to be introspective, to acknowledge who I was not. My weakness exposed, his weakness exposed, the best we could hope for was good smack. One guy, who I used to play football with in school, ended up at the same house as me doing a bag. He whacked up, I chased. In terms of drainage, he was closer to the sewer than me. We both knew he was lower than I was. Possibly in a moment of magnanimity, I decided that day I would also shoot the heroin. I thought it might dull his own despicability somewhat my decision to do as he did. This is what I told myself anyway. I asked him to shoot it for me, as I was not skilled in the art of mainlining. And seeing that I had no protruding veins, a two-man team, we both agreed, would be conducive to attaining the proper results. But he, in his rapacity, a consequence of him not having scored in a while, went first. By the time we had a belt around my arm, he was already almost nodding off. He missed the vein, or rather, missed the place where we both thought a vein was deeply submerged. For months after that, I had two knots under my skin where he missed. 
youth precluded any real anxiety about disease or decay. As an older novice, I may have cared more. What did bother me was the fact he laughed, and then gouged out. Not only didn't I attain the results I needed, but I was then covered in blood, and had an addition to my subcutaneous arm that I was hardly fond of. I was not scared of needles, far from it. So I guess in terms of drug study acumen, I was solid. Male nurse dug around in my arm, looking for a vein, shaking and blushing, apologising. I felt sorry for him. He was black. I'd never known any black people, and I imagined most of them felt like victims in their white world. For this I pitied him for the pressure I imagined he was under as he fumbled with the syringe. Not long after the draw, we took a pill. In the morning, the draws were half-hourly, barely enough time to have a smoke before I was back for another draw. Later in the afternoon, the draws were taken each hour. My best vein was overwhelmed by midday. My arm was bruised, and I reckoned that none of the student doctors, or clinicians, or whatever they were, wanted to take the blood from my arm. The experience felt more like earning money. I was kind of happy that there was something to do, though having not slept for two nights, I was starting to see white dots where there should have been nothing. People started to lose their composure as the day wore on. Numbers sat alone in corners looking at the marks on their arms. Simon was always on the phone, and it annoyed me, as I thought we could have struck up a friendship. I didn't speak to him the whole day. I felt no effects from the drug, and concluded that I was most likely the victim of a placebo. I felt nothing at all, but at one point when I went into the smoking room for a fag, the men who always sat in there were definitely affected by something. One of them tried to talk to me in French. But my French isn't great, plus Quebecois sounds different from its progenitor. I'm not from around here, was about all I managed to get across. One of the men pointed out of the window that looked into the main room, at number three, the guy with insect eyes, whom I felt had tried to harass me into a friendship. A few of the men crowded at the window around my seat. One of them even put his hand on my shoulder. They said something I didn't understand, and pointed again at three, who fortunately had his back turned while he played Nintendo. The men soon gave up trying to get across whatever it was they wanted to tell me. I thought I might be the brunt of a homosexual joke, though my intuition told me it was something else. The medication we had taken was apparently for anxiety relief, and it seemed that the smoking room men were definitely higher than usual. Tabernak, they would often shout, which I naturally translated as fuck, seeing that it was used with the same kind of delivery as the word fuck is often used. I would later find out its meaning, and I was right, it was a curse word used in a similar way to the word fuck. Derived from tabernacle, it's sacrilegious and carries quite a bit of weight in French Canada. The men had perked up, they laughed, made eye contact with me, and rolled out sentences punctuated with tabernacle. I was kind of downcast that I felt nothing from my pill. At the end of the day, as we were giving the last of our blood, a man fainted during a draw. A few of us peered into the lab where he was sat on a reclining chair with a towel over his face. Some of his friends, smoking room clique, quite aggressively ushered us away from the window. Spirits were down suddenly. The mood had shifted. A pall of anxiety swept through the room, and it affected us all. The spell was broken. By the time we went to bed, I offered sixteen a smile. 
but he didn't even contemplate returning my gesture. It had been a hard day, but not hard enough for him to forgive me for catching him with his hand on his cock. As I lay awake in bed, rigorously keeping my head to the side where the wall was, I entertained a theory wherein I might hate myself. You've taken drugs all your life. You've tried to nullify whatever life existed outside of drugs. You smoked at six, drank at ten, inhaled at twelve, and all you've done since those primitive wrecks is struggle to find a way not to be yourself. You are feckless. You are a coward. You can't remember a time when you weren't actively seeking drugs, or on them, or coming down from them. You regale people with your drug-taking stories, and at times even feel proud of what you are. But the reality is bleaker than the concept. You hate yourself. Like your mother, you are not ever complete without drugs, in her case alcohol. Your insecurities are limitless. Your weakness is bottomless. You may have cast aside the aspersions from others that you are nothing but a weak and infected addict. You have laughed off fears of becoming as crippled by drugs as your mum was, but you are a cripple. You have been crippled since you could ride a fucking bike. You have always hated yourself. You must despise yourself. You must. Otherwise, why would you deprive yourself of sobriety whenever you have the chance? It may have been fun in the beginning, or so you tell yourself. But truth be known, it was never fun. It was deadly serious, from that first drink of beer. What you lamely associate with having a good time is, in actuality, you having a very bad time, which is most of the time. Your hedonism is a sickness. You are schizoid unless you are high. You are anxious when the house is dry. This is maybe the longest you've been without drugs for years. And you're on a drug study. <laughs> for God's sake, you pitied yourself because you weren't high today. Your best friend is dead. Your girlfriend, whom you have already contaminated, is waiting at home for you, thinking about you, not drugs, not getting high, not seeking asylum in your opiate world, your no-laugh scepticism. When will this stop? Look at yourself. Look at your arms, your pathetic, your mundane. You're too young to die, but God knows you don't deserve to be alive. My self-castigation, a morose soliloquy spurred on not only by sleep deprivation, but by something far more substantial the truth, made every minute of being awake swell and hurt, as if I were lying there with an injury that could not be treated. My self-hatred kept me exhausted enough to keep me deliriously awake, until sometime in the early hours the light mocked me from the other side of the curtain and sent me to sleep in shame, only what seemed like minutes before I was awakened again. They had actually allowed us extra sleep. Usually we would have been woken up in the dark. We weren't told the reason for our lay-in, but I think we all knew. The end of day three had not ended well. I found out that the guy who had fainted, who was a good friend of the alpha male, had been sent home. It was a lurid ignominy, not only to him but to his pals. In fact, it was worse for them, as they had to remain in the study aware that one of their boys had fallen when inferior men with small builds, such as myself, were unfairly still standing. As I ate my two slices of toast, one parcel of butter, two eggs, one sausage, two rashes of bacon, eight small button mushrooms, salt, pepper, sauce, one sachet, tea, I was bitterly joyous that one of the smoking all of which had, had lost its entirety, had collapsed, had had to be carted off into the snow like a wounded, sad old bear. I hoped it was the man whose hand had touched my shoulder.
whilst I circled the room with my eyes in an attempt to see which man had been taken away, I noticed I was gritting my teeth. I was not normally so vindictive. I folded an empty sachet of sauce into a very tight ball. I thought to myself, you shouldn't be so vindictive. The first blood draw that day was the worst one. Having the needle scavenge for blood where bruises internal and external moaned at the thought of having to do it all over again. My arms had coloured during the night to pastel shades of green, yellow, purple and brown, merging like countries on a map. The red dots from where the pin had broken the skin could have been capital cities. Simon spent most of the fourth day on the phone again, only intermittently sitting down at a table where I was sitting to talk about music and a gig he would be playing that I was invited to. I've never done a study this long, he told me, looking down now. He asked me if I had any books, and I told him that I stupidly thought that I could spend the five days of the study just thinking. Yeah, right, he said. You need all the books you can just so you don't have to talk to anyone else. For a moment I wondered if I were included, but he smiled and added, after a short pause, We've got to meet up after this. I'll show you around the ghetto, ironically emphasizing his choice of word for the student area in which he lived. With some courage, I asked, So, do you know where I can score in Montreal? Score what? Gear. Drugs? Yeah. A moment of awkwardness ensued. He looked at me quizzically, and I wasn't sure whether he would become indignant with me or give me a telephone number. No, no, I don't, he said. He then told me he was going to call his girlfriend again. I thought he was lying. It was a goldfish existence in the study after the big blood draw day. I wasn't sure whether the drug they had given me had not only constipated my ability to sleep, but had also hacked into my brain and was making it crash each time I decided I needed it. I would walk to one side of the room and then halfway there forget why I was going there. Like a trapped, befuddled animal, I would then stand in the middle of the room, assuring myself all the time that no one was watching me, and move to what I thought was the safest part of the room. Being part of a medical study, the thought did cross my mind that I might be one of umpteen subjects wandering round a giant Skinner box. It was safest to sit in one place, I concluded. But where to sit was a question that was hard to percolate. As soon as the word where connected to some receptor in my brain's hardware, my hardware crashed and left the word repeating itself in my head until where filled my entire thoughts. I wanted to disable this word from my consciousness as it was starting to induce panic, though its absence, it seemed to me, might precipitate something far more intense. So for a few hours I sat at a table, looking through a window on the other side of the room, into an empty lab, concentrating solely on the word WHERE. Had the staff not called my name for dinner, I might have rendered myself catatonic. I had to sleep. Sixteen stood in front of me. He had yet to say anything at all to me. The closest he came to communication was vague gesticulation, a kind of harnessed anger, resentment, that he didn't know how to properly communicate to me. I was always grateful hunger kept us both busy while waiting in line. After lunch, I had forgotten about the word where, and before it started up again, I went into the smoking room where I thought I might stay for a while and watch TV. UFC was playing again, and I was the only English speaker in the room. The atmosphere seemed gloomier than before. 
Even Alpha Male was quiet. I couldn't concentrate on the TV, and so in a moment of what must have seemed like social blindness to the other men, I attempted to speak French. I asked one of the guys, a short older man with a nest of bristles on his face, if he liked English football. Sport, I assumed, would be a common ground. Vous aimez football d'Angleterre? I asked him, hoping I had constructed and enunciated this sentence well. He looked at me, at first nonplussed, and then as if able to read the minds of the other men, he smiled sardonically at me. On cue, all the other men laughed sardonically. Some of them, I think, tried to persuade the man to answer me. He said something I could not understand. Whatever he said, I sensed it was meant to belittle me. Knowing Sixteen was somewhere in that room, I was too ashamed to look around, augmented my embarrassment. I felt close to him in a pathetic way. What is wrong with these people, I thought, while contemplating my football question and trying to understand how it had caused the mockery. Fuck this, I said, not to anyone in particular, and stood up. Moments before the door closed behind me, I realised this parting phrase may have been rash. What if I was wrong, if I'd read them wrong, and as I sat back at a table, I wondered if that scene had even happened. Unfortunately, it had. Alpha male came striding towards me, shouting something in French, each military sentence seeming to end with that word, tabernacle. I'm sleep-deprived, I wanted to scream back. I'm thousands of miles from home. My friend is dead. I'm sorry. This made me feel weak. I was weak. Wakefulness had me by the feet, dangling me over the edge of a cliff, coercing me to think and say things I didn't want to. By the time the male nurses were on the scene, some of the man's friends had Alpha Male by the shoulders and had calmed him down. He gave me a look, just after glancing at the nurses, as if to say, you almost made me lose my money. I imagined cameras zooming in on my face, and if you followed the electric currents from those cameras, you'd end up in a dimly lit room where men with white coats were scrutinizing me and Alpha Male, and perhaps some of those men were wringing their hands in vindication, or maybe they were disappointed. I felt the absence of Holly palpably, like waking up from one of my dreams of my dead best friend after he'd convinced me he was alive. I tried to think of her, imagine what she might be doing, though my imagination suffered from an interference. The static noise of the study that bossed all imaginary figments, not allowing them to fully form. Where is that fucking man with his balls? Where is Simon? The study looked empty now. The rats had crawled into their holes, abandoning all progress, retreating. I was the last rat standing. But was that really true? They were there, in the room, and the TV was playing. The games console was being used. Pool balls clanked against each other. I couldn't help but think of my mother. She was here, watching me, nodding her head, arms folded, revivified in death shoveling up my emotions and bagging them for eternity. I was no better than she was. You have to get off this trip. Calm down. You'll be out soon. On the fourth night, I slept. Damien, his name was Damien, stood in front of me, bent over with laughter. I can't believe you fell for that, he said and laughed some more. You're dead. Just stop this shit. If I were dead, you wouldn't be speaking to me. This is a dream. You've done this before. Is it fuck a dream? Ask anyone. Call my dad. Call him now. 
You're dead. What are you doing tomorrow? Fuck off. Seriously, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm in Canada, Damien. What are you doing over there? I live here. I went to your funeral. You stupid fucking idiot. Why did you have to do that? Do what? Kill yourself. Shut up. No one is dead. I'll tell you what. Just wake up. Wake up now, and you'll see. See what? See, I'm not dead. It was dark when I awoke, probably the middle of the night. Sixteen was snoring. I had not realised before this time how much of an indignity it was to have all these people whom I didn't know so close to me as they slept. A man must sleep alone to be truly comfortable. The sounds of others snoring, coughing, whispering, hacking up phlegm, these are sounds that should never be heard. Damien wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up. Would I ever? As I lay awake in the bed, feeling better for a few hours' sleep, I felt his presence. We were to be released at 5 p.m., in order, at ten-minute intervals, and there would be one more blood draw. The phones were busy. The reason, I assumed, was because all the men were arranging to be picked up by their wives, lovers, etc. It was over. Thirty-five was sat meditating with his balls. Three was talking to him. I decided to go over and speak to them. As I walked to their table, I heard a shout from the far end of the room, where the pool table was, on one of the telephones. It was Simon. Simon was tall, not muscular, but he looked strong. He was arguing with one of the men that regularly stayed in the smoking room. I'll fuck you, you retard, I heard Simon say. Soon he was surrounded by male nurses, and most of the clique from the smoking room. Feeling empowered by the sleep I'd undertaken, and strangely unhindered of my usual fears, I walked into the ring of men surrounding Simon and the other bloke. Alpha male was stood directly behind the man arguing with Simon. He looked at me for a second, then fixed his view on Simon. I pushed towards Simon and stood at his side. What's wrong? I asked. This fucking guy is giving me a hard time about using the phone. Everyone just settle down, said one of the nurses, the black guy. Alpha male was now shouting something in Simon's direction. Thirty-five had joined the melee. I wondered if he might really be able to kill a man with one blow. It seemed absurd, it seemed ridiculous that we might lose our money now. Maybe we all thought the cash was already in the bag. I attempted to stare down Alpha Male. He was not interested. For good reason. I don't look anything like a threat to any large man. So I surveyed the crowd for sixteen, but couldn't see him. We should probably just get out of here. We've got like one hour. And then Simon waved his hands at the two Frenchmen, as a referee does when he waves no foul in football. This capitulation... You would think by the expressions of the Frenchmen's faces, let us off the hook. What number are you? I asked Simon. Fifty-one. Fuck, I didn't even know there were fifty-one of us. Well, fifty now. Dude, I'm going to get on that other phone. He walked over to where there was now a free telephone. The scene was pointless, really, but it was necessary. Necessary inasmuch as it is necessary for a dog to bark when it has been tied up all day. Sixteen walked out into the street. I waited for my check. Alpha male was still in the room. If it came to a fight, I thought, I might be able to handle myself with sixteen. That was it. I'd seen his weakness. But the other men weren't human. They weren't vulnerable. I said goodbye to Simon, collected my check and walked outside. The snow was mostly now banked at the side of the street. Small fissured cliffs, grimy and wasting away. The end of the winter is a painful death. It's an ugly death. 
disgraceful in a way, and I couldn't wait for it to end. I walked to the bus stop, looking around at the decay, but also alert to the chance that I might suddenly be jumped upon by a mob of angry French Canadians. Fuck, I wanted to be back with Holly. I wanted to be warm, to allow myself infancy pushed up against her bosom. Decay is hardly satisfying, even when loss seems to mean everything. I'd been around decay, it seemed, for years, my own decay included. All this morbidity and saturated melancholy, the self-hate and embitterment. This was all just a mental prosthesis, my crutch. It was time to rehabilitate. Sixteen was waiting for the bus. He was alone, thankfully. The wind was cold, so I had no choice but to join him in the shelter. I made sure to look at him before he looked at me. He surprised me. Parlez-vous français? Non, I said, forgetting how exactly you pronounce non. Was it non or non? Where are you from? He asked in English. England. I don't live here in Canada. I've just been here a short while. He looked content, rubbing his hands together to keep warm, and he smiled at me. I think the smile was a gesture of forgiveness, an empathetic understanding that the stress of the study was over for both of us. I smiled back at him. You are from England. He paused and looked into his hands, maybe to see if the colour of his skin had changed from warming them. Then he looked up at me and asked, in a good-humoured way, What the fuck are you doing in Montreal, testing drugs? His English was perfect, which made me wonder why he had not said anything to me in the study. I felt I'd been tricked. I need the money, I said, repressing an urge to tell him the story of my losing my job the way I did. Repressing, as I always did, the urge to squander my privacy and fall for the temptation of believing that other people want to understand. My girlfriend lives in Canada, and I'm just trying to get a bit of cash together. There is no work in England? There's lots, but I don't want it. This is no way to earn money. He rubbed his hands more anxiously than before. I doubt he cared if they were cold. It's a start. I'll find another job. You don't speak French? Not really. I've been to France a few times. I've worked there, but I don't really speak much French. You should learn French if you want to be staying in Quebec. I know. I knew I wouldn't. I knew I wouldn't be staying in Quebec or learning French. It seemed a good time to ask something that had been bothering me. Why did you all laugh when I asked that guy if he liked football, English football? It didn't register with him at first what situation I was referring to. He thought for a second and then said, I didn't laugh. Why did the others laugh? I don't know. Uh, maybe they thought it was a funny question. He looked back at his hands. The bus is coming, he said. We stood up and stepped out of the shelter, not looking at each other. As the bus pulled in, the wheels crushed a piece of grey ice that had fallen from the bank. It shattered beneath the wheel, and we both jumped back. He flicked his head back and smiled, an expression that said, One thing after another, eh? He got on the bus first, and before paying the driver, he turned around and nodded at me stoically. As the bus pulled out, other study participants were walking towards the shelter. Eighteen must have gotten the lift back from his wife. I didn't really recognize the men ambling up the street. In fact, when I thought about it, I didn't recognize many people in that huge country. Canada. My blank slate. I could smell Holly from the stairwell. I gripped my fingers thinking about touching her. She had a book on Marxist political theory in her hands when she opened the door. She threw it on the floor as soon as seeing me, 
and jumped into my arms, bracing herself in my clasp with her legs. I was reminded of the twenty-something blood draws and their attendant bruises. "'You're back!' she cried. "'Yeah,' I muttered, not fully allowing myself, for some reason, the happiness I felt with her entangled in me. But it was enough, right then. It was enough for both of us. No Desperandum is, of course, entirely listener-supported. We rely on your donations to pay our authors. Without your help, we cannot continue to do this. No Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivative license. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. You can find us on the web at ndstories.com. Look for No Desperandum on Facebook. And listen every Wednesday afternoon, 12 p.m. Pacific, on the No Agenda stream at noagendastream.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.